I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat. I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. Hello and welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Kirk Kerna. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And this is episode 15. Hard to believe we have done 15 of these so far. But to celebrate our 15th episode, we are looking at what most people would consider one of the most readily identifiable Great American Novels. And that is John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, published in 1939. Scott, do you remember when you first read this book? I first read this book in high school and thought it went on forever and forever and forever, (laughs) although I did like it and it did affect me. And then I returned to it in graduate school and was really impressed with how much better the book had managed to make itself in those intervening years. I think you and I had a very similar experience. Most people, if they are exposed to this book, probably get it junior, senior year of high school. It still remains an often banned book in part because during the time period it was written, its message of being pro-labor, pro-migrant was perceived as being communistic. A lot of school boards always go for the dirty words and the sexual situations, but those are very minor in this book. So it's really the politics that have upset people and the sort of communitarian spirit, although in Steinbeck's case, as we shall see, it's very non-ideological. Scott, do you want to just give us a little overview of the plot? Absolutely. So we have this family, the Jodes, and it's set during the Dust Bowl, and they are people that have to leave the Dust Bowl and make their way along the highways to California, where they've been told is the land of milk and honey and everything's fine. And you're seeming protagonists, and I, I don't know that I agree with this, but most people tell the protagonist being Tom Jode, the older brother of, of this family of Jodes, who is just kicked free of spending a few years in jail for killing a man in a fight, and is going to join his family in heading west. And they're joined by Jim Casey, the former fallen preacher, And they're all kind of under the dirty, steadfast love and guidance of Ma Jode, the matriarch of the clan. One of the things that I would say about this book is that it is the artistic pinnacle of its author's career. I'm going to throw an analogy out there, and I hope you don't laugh or heckle me too hard, Scott. But when I think of the career of John Steinbeck, I compare it a lot in my mind to that of John Cougar Mellencamp, believe it or not. Okay. John Cougar Mellencamp entered the rock and roll business, uh, got his first recording contract in the mid-70s under the management of David Bowie's first manager, promptly took out the Mellencamp and renamed him Johnny Cougar, and he produced four or five albums before he found his 
voice, the sort of heartland voice that we think of. Yeah. And this analogy is not entirely gratuitous because Mellencamp is a recent winner of the Steinbeck Award that San Jose State gives out. So there is a connection there with the populist spirit. But John Steinbeck has a very interesting up and down career. And certainly The Grapes of Wrath is the book that we think of when we think of him. For sure. Although one or two other classics might pop into mind. This was his seventh book. And what's interesting is he started out really writing more in a pop cult vein, if we want to think of it that way. His first novel was called Cup of Gold, which was a pirate story. And only after that did he discover his subject matter, California. And it really wasn't until his fourth book called Tortilla Flat that he had much commercial success, but also that he zeroed in on the subject matter. And that's the life of working class people in many cases, at least in Tortilla Flats case uh, of mixed race people. Right. But he really found the subject matter of Grapes of Wrath in his next novel, which I think is probably his most underrated book, which is called In Dubious Battle, which came out in 1936, a very transformative year for him. Right. And that is a wonderful example of proletarian fiction, which Grapes of Wrath sort of is, but is not. So, Scott, can you give us a quick overview of proletarian fiction? And then we'll talk about Indubious Battle on our way to Grapes of Wrath. Well, I guess we'd start with the definition of what do we mean by the who, who make up the proletariat. And so maybe your early example of a book that's kind of tending that direction and trying to avoid it is War and Peace. And so the proletariat, of course, are the working serfs and the peasantry and the hardworking, uh, the lowest of the working class people across Russia in that novel. And where that book fails in being that kind of novel is that although we get glimpses into their life and glimpses in lives of those people trying to, in some ways or another, reform how serfs are treated, and of course it's Anna Karenina heads in a lot of these same directions, it isn't really about those characters. It's still about the gentry and the people who own the lands and who own all the the surrounding territory. So the proletariat novels would be the ones that are really focused on these people, what life has been like suffering under whatever kind of overlords there are. Usually they're connected to the land and the people who oppress them and the system which oppress them are all about owning the land. It's usually agrarian based. And I would say that also when you're dealing with people, there's often a lot of earthy humor, earthy realism when it comes to sex, when it comes to people being kind of simplistic in some ways. And ironically, many of the people who write proletarian fiction are not themselves of the proletariat. So there's always the dangerous little step of condescension. And if you're thinking of the person in American letters who maybe in some ways does it best with and those barriers completely vanish because there's even a little little bit of that condescension in this book. You know, the way he writes the phonetics with the Jode family, the way Tom and Jim Casey joke about getting girls out in the cornfield or whatever. Um, I think Faulkner's your guy who actually manages to wrestle with the proletariat and the upper classes and deals with them very fairly in a way that Erskine Caldwell in the South and even Steinbeck, oh, this is a great novel. You know, that may be one of the places he's still an observer who's been among them more than he is one of them. Thank you. And I agree with you completely. I find it very hard to read Erskine Caldwell. Uh, to me, that's just kind of a little, little Abner type yeah. country stuff. But I do agree that there tends to be in proletariat fiction, the, the writers 
tend to come from the middle class and they tend to reinvent themselves as what John Lennon called the working class hero, the spokesman for the downtrodden. Yeah. Very obviously the 1920s were the era of modernist experimentation, but when the economy collapsed in 1929 and the depression set in, there was almost an immediate urgency for writers to become politicized. And a lot of that generation that started out as experimental writers really struggled with becoming social activists. Fitzgerald claimed that he was a Marxist, which I have never quite believed. (laughs) I don't think the Saturday Evening Post believed it either as they wrote out those big checks. In fact, there are some really interesting pro-business, pro-capitalist stories that he cranked out. Maybe we should set the stage a little bit because World War I leads to two things, one immediately and one by and by. What happens immediately is, of course, the Russian Revolution. We have the rise of the, the Bolsheviks, who are, of course, the proletariat in some ways, too, but they're focused into kind of a, a, if you will, a political spear point in order to eventually overthrow everything going on over there. And before long, you have a new order arising in the Soviet Union. Very repressive order. Absolutely. And then in a few years, by and by, after the kind of indulgence and carelessness of having won the war and thinking, oh, the incredible economic impact of World War I will be felt in Europe, but America can move in and cash in on this. Instead, the bottom falls out everywhere and we plummet into the Great Depression at the end of the 20s. And it's still very much in swing throughout the 30s. And so suddenly the notion as people are losing their jobs and their property and the numbers of unemployed skyrocket and homelessness skyrockets, and you have Hoovervilles and all these migrant labor camps and work camps springing up everywhere, the the idea that everyone should share everything and it should be based on your need, not your wants, starts sounding more attractive than it ever sounded to people before. And the news about Soviet practices and Stalinism had the intelligent people and those who are willing to turn off their ideology and listen to their brain were figuring out in the 30s what's going on. But there are a whole lot of people who are intellectually dallying with it and in love with it. Now, Steinbeck, despite everyone's arguments to the contrary, wasn't really one of those guys. He was always pretty clear-eyed about it because he is first and foremost kind of an individualist, probably a little bit of a libertarian. He never got sucked into the political or the ideological labeling or branding of himself. Yeah, late in his career, you know, people attack him because he goes, he's kind of pro-Vietnam War, but he's not really alone in people of his generation who saw that as an attempt to stem the tide of communism, which if you're watching what happens with Stalin, what happens with Mao is actually pretty frightening if you're going through it and you don't have the value of hindsight that we have. So this book then is his response to his his things he writes, but also dubious battle and what he'd seen in these camps, what he'd seen with people and how they're being treated. And this is also at the time the rise of fascism. Also at this time, we had the rise of fascism in Germany and in Italy. We have the Spanish Civil War is underway and things are going very badly for the the republic uh, by this point actually maybe the war's over by 38 right sure so and by the time the novel comes out uh, they've they've lost and hitler's gearing up to invade poland so it's actually a pretty scary time and he's writing about a lot of that in this book uh, as well 
It's, and this is, of course, part of why it has the weird reception it has. And again, he was not unusual in authors that were trained to think of literature as using mythology and symbolism. And all of a sudden in the early 30s, being told the urgency of literature is with the social scene. Sherwood Anderson struggled with that. Maybe the most successful writer right. to do that, that was a modernist, was John Dos Passos and his Trilogy USA has a huge influence on the Grapes of Wrath. So in 1936, he publishes In Dubious Battle, which gets a lot of attention. And in the fall of that year, he is contacted because of the political content of In Dubious Battle by the San Francisco News to do a series of journalistic pieces on the Dust Bowl migrants. The Dust Bowl, of course, was a natural disaster, partially man-made, in which the land erosion of the land was caught in the wind, and it drove away many of the homesteaders that had originally settled that state and surrounding states, not just Oklahoma, where the derogatory term Okie comes from, but Kansas, Texas, New Mexico. Right. All of those folks hit the road and a very famous highway that the Grapes of Wrath made legend on Route 66. Long before you got your kicks on Route 66, this is the path to California and the land of what was supposed to be the land of plenty. Those articles that came out in the fall of 1936 were called the Harvest Gypsies, collected under that name. Right. Steinbeck was in a weird way in that period, beginning to live two very different lives. On the one hand, he was becoming a very popular success of Mice and Men was published in the spring of 1937, became an immediate bestseller on the strength of Tortilla Flat, which was also a popular book, became an immediate Broadway smash. So on the one hand, he's all of a sudden besieged by the press and by fans. He's becoming a celebrity author. But at the same time, he is slipping anonymously into the valleys of Northern California and exploring the migrant camps that the refugees from these Dust Bowl states are living in. Now, there were two types of camps in that period. There were what you mentioned before, the Hoovervilles, which were the informal slums that sprung up. But also there were government-run facilities. And we see both of those in the Grapes of Wrath. We get a very different contrast. The government facilities, which were done under the auspices of the New Deal and the Relief Agency, were an attempt to give that labor force living conditions that were humane. There were toilets, there were showers, there were regular meals. The Hoovervilles were just squatters and the conditions that there were just terrible. When, when Steinbeck first saw those Hoovervilles, he was absolutely mortified by the conditions there. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the Harvest Gypsies was illustrated with photographs by Dorothea Lang, probably the most famous Depression-era photographer for the image of the migrant mother. It's hard to think of that picture without thinking of the Grapes of Wrath or vice versa. Yeah. So he does that series of articles and spends 1937 in this kind of dual life. I mean, on the one hand, he is touring Europe, going to Sweden and Denmark and Finland, but all at the same time, he's coming home and and emerging in these camps as an anonymous reporter collecting data. And during that time, he meets a guy there who is running one of the camps named Tom Collins, who not only takes him on tours of the camps, not only introduces him to many of the migrant families, which uh, Steinbeck will interview, 
but he's also giving him copies of his reports to his bosses in Washington. And the interesting things about these reports is they're not dry government ease. Mm. Tom Collins has a flair for incorporating all sorts of detail into these books, whether it's particular language or speech of these migrants, their folk songs, their habits, their cooking. It's almost a sociology of these people. And Steinbeck is fascinated by this detail. And he begins to form a plan that now that Of Mice and Men is a big success, that he's going to write a magnum opus. He's going to write the definitive big book that he spent the last 10 years basically aiming to write. People who are coming to this podcast who know a little bit about Steinbeck, they probably think of him as a writer of doorstop novels. But only two of his books are really in that category. They're just his two of his most famous. This one and the somewhat, let's be charitable to say, somewhat melodramatic East of Eden from 1950, was it 54? 52, I believe. 52. And these are the novels he becomes so well-known. But the, the truth is most of his oeuvre are short, very readable, quick novels. Tortilla Flat is a very funny, hilarious, quick novel about a bunch of uh, Mexican-American guys who are modeled after King Arthur's round table, but they're drunk, homeless guys, you know, and it's a, it's not with a depression, but there's no melancholy or sadness in it at the same time. It's very interesting yeah. in that way. And many of his novels are very comedic. And so if you only know him through East of Eden and the Grapes of Wrath, you've only seen one small part of a very multifaceted writer. I'm glad you mentioned the humor because another book that he will become famous for that had a huge influence on Northern California tourism is Cannery Row, which is again, a humorous look right. at the derelicts and the bums and the life of Monterey there along the coast back when it was in a depression era. Yeah. His mentor was a, a biologist, a, wild, a marine biologist and an ecologist named Ed Ricketts. And he spent a lot of time. This is an older fellow, not a whole lot older, but who really took Steinbeck under his wing and Steinbeck became a not too bad amateur yeah. marine biologist himself. And so he based his doc from Cannery Road, the sequel Sweet Thursday on Ed Ricketts. One of the other things that's a little surprising when you look at the body of work, he wrote 33 books, which is significant, but 18 are works of fiction, mostly novels, a couple of novellas or works or short stories, 15 nonfiction books. Yeah. So he wrote an awful lot of nonfiction as well. Uh, and so he's, he's someone who's very involved with all these things. And of course, this novel, Grapes of Wrath, we should, we should say before we jump into it, Kirk, wins the National Book Award and a Pulitzer Prize. And of course, comes out, and we'll talk about this later, a giant film just a year later. It's also very controversial reception that we want to talk about yeah. precisely because of the politics of it. One of the things that's always struck me about this book is this is a this is a book that was written very quickly. Yeah. He essentially knocked this out in six months. This is a 200,000 word novel written between May and first draft was finished in October 1938. One of the great resources that we have for understanding how this book together is his diary that he kept at the time or his journal, not really a diary where he would go over and his thoughts reflect upon the day's writing. It's called Working Days. Really wonderful. I wish every great American novel had this kind of companion to it because you get to get to see the creative process develop. Yeah, no kidding. What's fascinating about the book is it's very organic. He essentially knew 
all of the pieces. There was very little revision in terms of form or structure. He sort of knew where he was going with the story. Of course, part of that is about the fact that this is a journey narrative. We are roughly a third of the novel in Oklahoma, and then we hit the road and we are on the journey to the promised land. And then it is the disappointment in the promised land. He did struggle to get traction on this book, however, and there were a couple early precursors that he began and then destroyed. So we don't have those early drafts, but after he did the Harvest Gypsies, he was telling people he was writing a novel called The Oklahomans, and nobody has really ever found any of that manuscript. There's really not clear what it was other than he was telling people in 1937 that he was working on fictionalizing the Harvest Gypsies material. Mm. Maybe more to the point, and this is why we understand the tone and the mood and the epic ambition of this novel, is he tried to write a satire about a strike in his hometown of Salinas that occurred in 1936. It was over lettuce, the lettuce production. So this was a book that was supposed to be called La Faire Lettuceburg. Lettuceburg was going to be the unofficial title of the novel. His publisher at the time, whose name was Pat Covici, ran a small firm called Covici Freed, was desperate for the book because Steinbeck was his only author that was making any kind of money. And Steinbeck's wife, Carol, who played a huge role in this novel and helping shape it, read the manuscript of Lafare Lettuceburg and said, burn it. <laughs> so he did. So one of the ways that we understand why he was able to write the novel so effortlessly and I say that in the sense that it didn't require a lot of juggling of the pieces, was because he had stewed on it for a long time. And I'm just kind of curious, Scott, as we shift into talking about the novel itself, let me throw an idea out. I think sometimes this novel suffers a bit from over-familiarity in the sense that it is so iconic in the popular culture and so well-known and frankly so associated with high school reading that we take it for granted a little bit. But I also think that part of that comes from the fact that it is a novel written toward the end of the period of high modernist experimentation that emphasized symbolism and illusion and analog and all of these devices to give importance to the novel. Sure. So one of the things that I think this book suffers from is Sometimes the symbolism can feel a little creaky, right? a little obvious. A little heavy-handed. Yeah, heavy-handed. And actually, in the 50s, when modernism is really on its death knell, and Steinbeck is doing it in books like East of Eden, but also in the 40s with a short novella like The Pearl, yeah, or Hemingway's doing it with The Old Man in the Sea, or Faulkner's doing it with his, arguably his worst novel. The Fable. There you go. Even the title is allegorical. These are guys that are writing in um, trumped up importance of the subject matter. And what happens is literary critics at the time come to associate this with middle brow literature. This was a term that Dwight MacDonald invented to heap upon books that were literary, but for the popular audience. Yeah. And they don't quite have the organic immediacy or even the irony of something like As I Lay Dying. When we think of high modernism, we do tend to think of the gears and the flashy lights and all the important stuff that goes on in the books. But what we 
also tend to forget is the quality of the prose. So the you know whether it's the lyrical stretches of dense poetry and Faulkner or the more clear, lucid poetry of Fitzgerald, the kind of wow, where did that come from? Sparseness of Hemingway and really Steinbeck's style is pretty straightforward. He will occasionally throw on a kind of humorous elevated tone, such as in Tortilla Flat, where he's kind of writing as if it's a fable or a folktale in a way, but but mostly it's very straightforward prose. And I don't really think mostly he's that interested in modernism, other than, like you said, the symbols and the intervening or interluding chapters, which I think that's a bit of a modernist trope. If we think of as early dying is a, is a really good example of one, or even for that matter, um, the, the uber modernist novel has got to be Ulysses by James Joyce. Yeah. Um, and in a, in a same thing in a minor key, um, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, where we had the kind of deviations to other things going on. And that's kind of a tour de force, Mrs. Dalloway. And it's very much achieving a certain stylistic, all this stuff goes on at once, you know, she's messing with time and the theories of time. So, I think people judge him a bit because he is very readable and straightforward. And they also perhaps in this book, he does the phonetic rendering a class in the way that every other writer in the mm-hmm. 20s and 30s and 40s, and including his friend Erskine Caldwell, who we disparaged inappropriately so earlier. I think they judge it for that. And what they what they leave out are two things, Kurt, are that where one place where literary writers often go wrong and middle brow writers get it right is in development of character and making you care about characters so when you think about teenagers staying up all night get caught up in a book and people loving a book that they reread it immediately we often are really thinking about genre novels and melodrama when people go online and say i cried and cried and cried when so and so died they're not usually talking about james joyce or faulkner they are talking about pat conroy who would be your more recent holder of the middle brow banner right and I think Steinbeck does get us caught up in his characters. And, and that's where probably people don't give him the credit he deserves. And he, he knows, unlike a lot of modernist writers, he does know how to plot. So I don't know if that really addressed your question at all. It does. And I'm going to expand on what you said just a bit and suggest that the quality of literariness that a lot of critics want to see that distinguishes something from middle brow or sentimental, which is another word to get slapped on Steinbeck a lot, is irony. Yeah. And I think one of the ways of understanding how different Grapes of Wrath is than most modernist works that are this experimental is to compare it or contrast it to As I Lay Dying. There's a lot of similarities there in terms of the journey motif. But Faulkner invents his suffering family in order to heap misery upon misery upon them to almost turn their tragedy into a grotesque comedy of endurance. And it ends with a joke. Right. They've come all this way only to discover that all along their father was aiming to get a new wife. Right. And now I can get me them teeth. Right. That would never fly in the grapes of wrath. And it's and part of the reason is because of Steinbeck's political ambitions for the novel as well. So one of the things that he's doing, even in an era of proletariat fiction, is he is trying to import a little art into political novels, which were almost defiantly anti-experimental, at least the frontline ones. 
Dos Passos is very experimental, but people like Jack Conroy or Mike Gold or some of the other writers that were doing novels about strikes, they were really aiming to rouse people rather than dazzle them. It's very hard to write a political novel that is worth reading five minutes after the political cause has subsided slightly. People can do it. And a lot of Steinbeck's contemporaries fell because of that. But he's writing a book that's about more than the political moment. It is about humanity and about the, you know, what William Faulkner would call the human heart in conflict with itself. And that's going to pay dividends. So where I would say this book strives to be modernistic, at least in terms of experimentation and form, is the alteration of chapters, which is probably its most famous or most controversial element of, of structure and style. These come to be known as intercalary chapters or interstitial chapters. These are where we have 16 chapters about the Jode family on their literal journey. And then in between them are more expository chapters in which he is universalizing the experience and presenting them in a melange of voices. I think it's one of the great things about the novel. A lot of people don't think this technique works. It's probably the most controversial aspect of the novel in terms of its style. Absolutely. But I think it's fair to ask, what would the novel be like without those? It'd be kind of like taking all the whale stuff out of Moby Dick. And that's a novel that in many ways, even though I don't think Steinbeck was necessarily familiar with it, certainly wouldn't working on it as a blueprint. But it has a lot of parallels, too, in terms of its ambition. Yeah, There's always a desire on the part of the great American novel to take what is specific and somehow make it universal. And that's where the epic quality comes from. You're absolutely right. because he, And he does it in two ways. He mostly avoids grand philosophizing in, the, in those chapters. And for the listeners, I had to confess to Kirk, and I've taught English at the college level for quite some years now. And I still have not run into the word intercalary before. And I was thinking, isn't that what you do when you're really hungry, but you don't eat as much as you want and get all the calories <laughs> you want? You, you, you eat an intercalary meal instead. But no, it turns out this is what's nice about doing this podcast. I get to learn things from Kurt. I'm not sure why that term became associated so much with Grapes of Wrath, but you just do see it used a lot in the criticism. So I, I ran with that. I'm with you on it. And he has a few cases where he does something that's a little, you know, where the third person implied author is given his reins and can kind of wax on a bit. But I think it's actually pretty successful and well-written. But the other thing he does is he creates in these little vignettes, little stories, real people in these little, mm -hmm. uh, they're almost like short, short stories. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say prose poems because that's not where his style goes in the way that you can use that for the, the intercalary sections to In Our Time by Hemingway or, or interstitial, however we call those. But in this case, he locates some like the waitress who ends up giving the kids candy more than they're supposed to and the truck driver who teases her over it. And then he tips her when he's not supposed to tip her that much. And a little bit of trivia on that, that specific chapter, Chris Christofferson cites that as an inspiration for his songwriting career, believe it or not. Wow. Well, maybe the name of that uh, trucker needs to be Bobby McGee. I don't, <laughs> I don't, you threw me with Chris Christofferson and all I'm thinking of is my dad has the album. Willie Nelson sings the greatest hits, Chris Christofferson. And if you haven't heard it, you haven't lived. There you go. So Kirk, tell us, where does the title of the novel come from? 
The title of the novel was actually not Steinbeck's choice, believe it or not. Because he had the Oklahomans ready to go, and that would really line people up everywhere except Nebraska. Right. His first wife, his then wife, Carol, who was basically his informal manager and editor at the time, even though he had an agent and an official editor, he makes reference in one of the intercalary chapters to the wrath of the workers. And she picked up on that allusion to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Julia Howell's famous Civil War abolition song from the early 1860s. And we all know the verse. You know, My eyes have seen the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. I was waiting for you to, to sing that out. <laughs> Luckily for you and for the dozens of people out there in podcast land, I, I didn't so injure your ears. What do you think the grapes of wrath means, Scott? Not necessarily in the context of this novel, but just as a metaphor. So the context of that song is that you are making God angry, and at some point he's going to visit his wrath upon you, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the, of the Lord. So the great, as you sow, so shall you reap, and the wages of sin are death. Right. And I think that the woman who wrote that song, and I'm going to throw out a guess and say it's Julia Ward Howe. I'm not even consulting my research assistant, Mr. Google, for that. And I can tell you how I remember that in a second. (laughs) When she wrote that song, I think it was very much with the idea that the South uh, was sinful and evil, and we're going to see the comeuppance for their ways for creating the Civil War and for holding on to slavery. The reason I can remember it is that my college roommate married, his name was Daryl Ward, and he married a woman named Julie Howe. And so her name became Julie Howe Ward. And I said, well, you got it pretty close, Julie, but you didn't quite get there for the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> yeah, I think I said Julia Howe and I left out the uh, ward, but she is one of the three name author poets there. So right. I'm glad you specified that. In fact, in the first edition of the novel, the song, the music itself was printed on the end papers. Oh, wow. That's very cool. And Steinbeck demanded that of Pat Covici, <laughs> the editor. One of the things that happened is, as Steinbeck was writing this, and it added pressure to the completion of the novel, is his publisher went out of business, and Covici freed ceased to be, and Steinbeck's contract, because he had had a couple hit books, was sold to Viking Press, and they brought Pat Covici on as an editor specifically to handle Steinbeck. So there was a lot of pressure on Steinbeck to produce a a big book. There was a lot of rumbling about it being written. And in fact, even before it made the news, there were rumors being circulated by California Associated Farmers, the uh, agribusiness people who did not want this novel to sway public opinion about Steinbeck's political loyalties, but also about his uh, personal character. At one point, the FBI was even sort of looking into whether he was a commie or not. So no matter how quickly he cranked out this novel in six months, he was also facing a lot of personal and business uh, pressures. Right. Let me give you that passage where the term Grapes of Wrath pops up. This is in chapter 25, of, and this is an intercalary chapter, probably one of the best ones, not my favorite. Wow. A little later on, we're going to, Scott and I are each going to pick our favorite of them and explain to you why we think those are pretty good examples of the uh, poetry that he was aiming for. But this is about the harvest of the fruit. 
and the way that the fruit is industrialized, the way that it is kept from the hands of the people. The people come with nets to fish for potatoes in the river, and the guards hold them back. They come in rattling cars to get the dumped oranges, but the kerosene is sprayed. And they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listen to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze. And in the eyes of the people, there is the failure. And in the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. And when Carol saw that line, she said, that's your title right there. That is a powerful sermonic passage. It's often described as a Jeremiah, which is a term out of Puritan literature in which a preacher stands up and denounces the flock for its, for its sins and basically says, if we could only get back to where we once belonged, we could write the moral ship. Wow. And if it were it originated with the Beatles rather than the Puritans, it would have been called a Jojo ad instead of a Jeremiah ad. <laughs> so obviously one of the major themes of the novel is the great divide people saw during the depression of how much the depression particularly impacted people from in the poorer working classes of the country and how they took the brunt of it on their shoulders while some of the large landowners, some of the large business owners took cuts in pay, maybe sold off an extra house, but in some cases weathered things relatively well. And that, that disconnect is one of the prevalent themes throughout the book. And I think it's shown exactly in what you just read, that they're willing to let the food go bad and be thrown away before they give away food to hungry people. A passage has always reminded me of when you go to grocery stores and you see the amount of food that is wasted on expiration dates. And I can never understand why that one or two day past the expiration date is not taken to homeless shelters or to other places and allowed to be social relief. But there are laws against it. And the guess is everyone's so scared of getting sued because someone got sick from eating a right. day old pork chop or something. And this, I think, dovetails into one of the other themes that shows up so much in here, which is just how one human can stand by and see this other human who is in some way or another his brother, his sister, and turn a completely cold shoulder and have no sympathy for that person whatsoever. And that's one way to think of the relationship between the Joe chapters and the more universal chapters is he is trying to urge us to take a move from seeing them in order to see us right, and to get people to identify with that experience. One of the interesting things about the book is Steinbeck himself sort of claimed to Pat Covici that there were five layers to the novel. You know, in the heyday of new criticism or formalism, this was a big generator of critical articles on The Grapes of Wrath with everybody and their uncle taking their shots at, at defining what these five layers are. But it, you can simply think of it this way. Now, there, there's a scholar named Susan Chillinglaw who's run a lot of Steinbeck studies for years out of San Jose State, and she has a great book called On Reading Grapes of Wrath, and she takes a little different approach to these five layers, drawing from Ed, Ed Ricketts' work, which is what Steinbeck meant. But generally, 
literary critics look at it this way. You have the literal level, which is the story of the Jodes. A little bit higher up on that on the rung is the level of the Dust Bowl immigrants. It's telling the story of a specific group of people at a specific time. And then you have the story of America, which is the story of the push West and the settling of the West. I think it's very relevant here that Steinbeck wrote a story after the Grapes of Wrath to cap off his beautiful trilogy of stories called The Red Pony. But this particular ending story that he did not write until 1946 is called The Leader of the People. And it is about the end of westward expansion and and sort of the uh, anime that sets in at that point. So this is a way in which Grapes of Wrath is the story of America. It's the story yeah. of the push west. And there are all kinds of references to the denuding of the landscape and the yeah. dispossession of the Native Americans that makes us understand that the quote unquote Okies are not simple victims of capitalism here, that there is a pattern of abuse that is going on and what they have what they have sown they are now reaping themselves then there's the level of mankind humanity maybe the most general level but then maybe the fifth one the way to look at it is at the level of uh the organism or of biology where you take all of the humanism out of it and you look at the way that species adapt in order to survive so oh interesting if you can come up with five different layers to the story, you too can can be a literary critic. But it is something that he clearly wanted these wanted this novel to have a multivalent structure to it. You know, Kirk, I got an extra layer for you. Okay. Maybe I'll save it until we jump into the symbolism. Okay. But first, I want to ask you, so we have all these horrible things that we're dealing with, dealing with the grapes of wrath that are being visited upon us, as well as uh, being oppressed by... The, the no good bankers and the tractor drivers being oppressed by the people along the way. And what you put forward to me in some of the notes we pass back and forth before we record is that obviously the, the way you contend with all these issues and it's the central core of the novel is to first you start with the family. And of course, this is a story of a family and how it holds together and fails to hold together as it moves west. And then how that family, you come to incorporate others into it and look out for others as if they're your family. Right. And that's the building of community. And the other term you used that I'm not familiar with how you mean it in this case, I know what it means in terms of the history of warfare, but I don't think you mean it in this case, is the phalanx. So could you explain that a little bit? Well, that's a term that Steinbeck seized upon in his own reading. And it was basically his theory, again, of survival. And the idea is basically that in biology, a group clusters together and forms a protective shield and survives through that kind of mutuality. And I think that's really his vision of the family, which is the nucleus of of any cluster of humans, but then communities. And what we see here is the effort to extend beyond the Jodes as a basic unit of family. And Ma is always trying to keep the family together, but can't. Then there's the effort to bond together with the larger community of struggling migrants. And so that's basically what the phalanx is. And for those of you who don't know, and most of you probably do, the this is a military formation of forming a square invented by the Greeks, perfected by the Romans. So, so many people, when they lined up their troops, they just lined up willy-nilly and ran down to attack. 
And here you have the Greeks and later the Romans who are forming these squared off units with these large shields facing their opposition that would lock together and they could hide under them. And even they could place them overhead if they were in the second and third ranks to stop arrows from landing among them and hurting them while people would have spears and short stabbing swords when people got close and it was devastatingly effective. Right. And so the idea that they're all bonded together in a tight unit and then shielding uh, makes perfect sense to me. At a political level, Steinbeck sees this. And again, this is important to stress, not as a metaphor for communism, because he was communitarian in the sense that he believed there should be a social support network for these people. The government should help out in the wake of a natural disaster like this and not allow business, not allow agribusiness to exploit, or the banks to exploit the workers' situation. But he really sees it as a democratic metaphor or metaphor for democracy in the idea that we're all bonded together by mutual interests and common purpose. As we dig into the novel, he clearly uses a number of of symbolic structures to build his story upon. One of them that fits right in, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead on our outline, but we can circle back. One of them that very much fits this notion of the phalanx is at some level, the turtle. Right. Everyone's the most famous turtle in the history of literature. The guy trying to cross the road, hit by the car, is not squished flat, but knocked off, gets over, starts making his way back across the road. So there is, it seems to be this idea here. You have to be protected. You have to have your shell in place. And when you get knocked into the ditch, you have to get up and start trying to cross the road again. But of course, there's more to it than that. You also carry your home with you as a turtle. Right. This also kind of connects to his interest in biology in general. And just throughout the book, he's very aware. And this goes back to the layer that you talked about before. So the opening scenes, it is everything is dead and desolate. And the the name of the man who's too stubborn to leave this land of the dead that the novel opens up in is Muley Graves. So he's stubborn as a mule. And of course, everything's dead and he's going to at least uh, in some way die if he stays. Yet he's determined to. And that's one of the things that's that's interesting. We talked about the notion of being tied to the land. Right. When we talked about my Antonia and where you really see it played out is the Jode grandfather cannot leave the land. He physically can't do it. And when he does, it destroys him. He's not adaptable. Right. And so he he's not adaptable. He's not able to change. He's not able to pick up and go somewhere else. And this is one of the problems they run into. We also see instances of people in this community that abandon each other. Right. Uh, Rosa Sharon's husband, Connie, just takes off. And that's one of the urgent messages of the novel is we have to maintain solidarity. So Rosa Sharn, we see here a a picture of someone who is in the earliest stages of this novel. And, and there's a good reason for this, but she's young. She's, in fact, we would say too young to be married and pregnant, but that's the world these people have grown up in. She's married and pregnant, and she kind of feels like she is the center of the universe. And she has a hard time feeling empathy for others, sympathy for others. She, and it's not so much that she's bad or mean. She simply doesn't really care about others all that much. She's more concerned with her own circumstances and situation. But the entire book is at some level about trying to move people out of that framework and into the idea of the the family has to tie into the community and they have to form that phalanx, as you said before. 
And all of these characters have biblical analogs. Yes. And that is a way that we dramatize the journey as a spiritual quest as well as one just for survival. Right. Obviously, Rosa Sharon's name comes from Song of Solomon. Yep. She's a principle of sensuality, if we want to think of it that way. But probably the most controversial one, Tom Jode is often regarded as a kind of Moses figure who's supposed to lead his people out of the desert. And here's where I'm going to take a little issue of how we all see Tom Jode and Woody Guthrie writes a song about him and, and Springsteen does. But I would argue that if you leave aside John Ford's film and really pay attention to book, the leader here is, is Ma Jode. Yeah. She is the hero of the novel. She may not have as much page time as Tom does. And the biblical figure I think you would point to for him is Doubting Thomas. Interesting. Who at first has to be convinced that it's not about just protecting yourself not striking back, not reacting in anger, but instead being able to take the lumps. And when you do fight, you fight for others and not for yourself. And so Tom has to have a, in some ways, he is the classic literary hero of a, of a classic journey quest. He has to grow along the journey and quest and evolve to a new place by the end of the yeah. story. But the one who is the rock solid, you know, the rock of Gibraltar they can all anchor to is Ma Jode. She's the one that keeps them focused. She's the one that has the heart and soul of, of the book. Now, and of course, Jim, Jim Casey, initials JC. That's that's a spot where a lot of literary critics would say, you know, it's that that may be just a little too on yeah, the nose, it's, just a little too obvious. Well, I think he thought he was leading people away when early on the first thing he admits is yeah at the meetings i'd get the young women so worked up would go have sex in the weeds they're thinking well that's not much like jesus yeah and so maybe that will lead him astray but it was still obvious and he does eventually sacrifice himself for others and he's killed although he's done nothing wrong and his words to his killers are echo jesus's words i mean he says you boys don't know what you're doing that's the one that's a little heavy-handed that we talked about before yeah. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned Tom as an epic hero in that quest. A little bit of trivia that I'm always fascinated by is Steinbeck was good friends with Joseph Campbell uh, in the early 30s. Oh. They kind of fell out by the mid 30s. But, you know, Joseph Campbell, the mythologer who would go on to write the hero of a thousand faces and. Yep. Eventually, all of that idea that there is a cross-cultural universal pattern of heroism or journey or identity growth. Those Jungian archetypes that you, that you follow. Right. That becomes the basis for our favorite movie, Star Wars, yeah. of course, which is basically Joseph Campbell with a different title. So there's an interesting Grapes of Wrath Star Wars connection there. There you go. Well, and, and Tom is, is practicing as a uh, Jedi Knight and... Ma Jode is clearly where Yoda comes from, and Jode and Yoda. Yoda was supposed to be Joda, but okay, I'm making all this up. You can feel free to delete the last 30 seconds. <laughs> so let me ask you this. What about the Route 66? I mean, clearly that's the way you went west. And if he's just choosing the road everyone uses when they go west, is there anything, on the other hand, whenever people start looking at biblical symbolism, it's really hard to stay away from numbers if those numbers have anything to do with three or with 40, those being the big biblical numbers. So, you know, we have two threes, that makes a 66. And we have the Tom as your kind of leader figure. We have Jim Casey is it. So we have two. I mean, does the Route 66 mean anything? As you said, it's not Route 666. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's a case where if you go into numerology, you're probably 
pushing your luck there. Uh, one of the stories that Steinbeck later told, which was not true, was that he had researched the novel by traveling with a family from Oklahoma across Route 66. Now, he did do that with Carol in spring of 1937, but that was on his way back from a trip to Europe. Not exactly the kind of journalistic research that he would later claim that he had done, but he certainly interviewed many of those folks that had made that journey. And again, so much of America is about the mythology of the road. And so I think that's maybe where, rather than a biblical precedent, maybe more a mythological one. I mean, okay. So now we're coming to my layer. I want to point out that I was going to add to it that we talked about earlier. So if you're thinking of 20th century American culture, what primary thing distinguishes it from all other world cultures, with the possible exception being those cultures that have been profoundly influenced by American culture? Well, if we weren't doing this in 2022, I would say affordable gas prices. Well, you're, you're headed in the right direction. We are a culture that is utterly obsessed with the automobile. Exactly. And when we think of the great road novel in American literature, the one that usually comes to people's mind is Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which would still be almost 20 years away at this point. But I got to say, this is probably, we have earlier great journey novels, but this one's actually about a car. And the car throughout this section, uh, throughout the novel that that vehicle seems to have a symbiotic relationship with the Jode family. It's all, everything's piled on and they're piled on and it's right out of the Beverly Hillbillies, which is clearly making a reference to Grapes of Wrath in the opening of that show. And, and Kirk and I are of a generation where everyone had seen the same 25 primary television shows and you can always make <laughs> references. For those of you from the internet generation, Go to YouTube, watch the opening minutes with the song with by Ernest Tubbs or whoever it is, and you'll see what we're talking about. And they, that that shows up, and he, and he even goes a little further. And so in one of the intercalary chapters, uh, this is the 11th chapter, he talks about how there's a warmth of life in the barn and the heat and smell of life. But when the motor of a tractor stops... It is as dead as the ore it came from. The heat goes out of it like the living heat. It leaves a corpse. Then the corrugated iron doors are closed, and the tractor man drives home to town, perhaps 20 miles away. He need not come back for weeks or months where the tractor is dead. This is easy and efficient. So easy that the wonder goes out of work. So efficient the wonder goes out of land and the working of it. With the wonder, the deep understanding and the relation. And in the tractor man, there grows a content that comes only to a stranger who has little understanding and no relation. For nitrates are not the land, nor phosphates, and the length of fiber in the cotton is not the land. Carbon is not a man, nor salt, nor water, nor calcium. He is all these, but he is much more, much more, and the land is so much more than its analysis. That man who is more than his chemistry walking on the earth, turning his plow point for a stone, dropping his handles to slide over an outcropping, kneeling in the earth to eat his lunch. That man who is more than his elements knows the land that is more than its analysis. But the machine man driving a dead tractor on land he does not know and love, understands only chemistry, and he is contemptuous of the land and of himself. When the corrugated iron doors are shut, he goes home, and his home is not the land. And that divide between the coming industrialization of America and the former, and maybe it romanticizes agriculture, but the, the former 
people who were tied to the land. I think that divide is one of his other layers here. The difference between people who see the land, it's, it's, it's living in the world and not just presuming ownership of the world, right? Right. I think that's a really wonderful example. You know, when we talk about Route 66, I wanted to point out a passage out of the subsequent chapter. I think if you're in chapter 11, then the next chapter, chapter 12, which may be the only point in the novel where we do have have two intercalary chapters right next to each other. But this is where he talks about Route 66. Oh, And I want to read this, and then I want to give you two examples, one literary and one pop culture, I think, of why this sort of tribute to the road really bulls it straight down the middle in terms of its its appeal. Clarksville and Ozark and Van Buren and Fort Smith on 64. Then there's the end of Arkansas and all the roads into Oklahoma City, 66 down from Tulsa, 270 up from McAllister, 81 from Wichita Falls South, from Eden North, Edmond, Loud, Purcell, 66 out of Oklahoma City, El Reno and Clinton going west on 66, Hydro, Elk City, Texola. It's almost like he's giving us a map here. And then there's an end to Oklahoma, 66 across the panhandle of Texas, Shamrock and McLean, Conway and Amarillo, the Yellow, Will Dorado and Vega and Boise, and there's an end of Texas. You, you know, it's almost like he's taken us on a travel log here. It reminds me so much of the poet, the modernist poet, experimental modernist poet, Hart Crane who did a book of poems called The Bridge. And in one of those, he has a train poem, the specific title of it escapes me right at the moment. But he talks about all the sights that you see as a hobo when you ride the train and the different stops that you go through and the different voices you hear. But the pop culture one, I'm going to suggest to you that this gets echoed in the popular culture is Johnny Cash's song, I've Been Everywhere. You know that song, don't you, Scott? Oh, yeah. It's been in the, I want to say, UPS commercials lately or post office or? Every morning when I watch the news, I find that being played ad infinitum. Yeah. But yeah, it's basically like a roll call of cities. And again, the thing we want to stress is that this idea of the open road is a very, very American theme or issue. And it's a way of mythologizing our own westward expansion, but also the idea that there is no sitting still in America. Grapes of Wrath is sometimes described as an anti-Odyssey in in that the journey is not toward home, but away from home. Absolutely. It's trying to figure out, you know, where home is maybe in some ways. So when we look at this notion of home, you know, what makes home to you? Is it the building? Is your hometown or is it the people you think of? I I think for myself, it really does come down to the people who can become home, who make it home, who who you want to see and have. And that it did, again, that idea that you have to be for people other than yourself, you have to reach out, which we see with Tom. We see with Rosa Sharon, I I talked about earlier, her defining characteristic for much of the book is self-centeredness, self-absorption. But it all changes toward the very end of the book. And it's something my daughters both had to read this in their AP literature classes um, over the past two years. And so my uh, longtime, very durable, excellent paperback copy here, this old uh, Centennial Edition copy that's such a good paperback, has seen a lot of beating 
um, which I think mostly came from the younger daughter, but she was so grossed out by the Rosa Sharn breastfeeding sequence. And so here's the man who's dying of starvation and they find him and save him. And I'm trying to remember his name. And what's funny is, of course, we also have the stillborn bait or the, the baby dying, right? And that is disposed of in a very uh, almost casual way. Um, and then we had the breastfeeding scene. So it's weird to me. The kids don't really focus on that. And the symbolism there is pretty straightforward. This is a land of the dead in a way. You have to find out how you can make things grow again and how it can be fruitful again. But when she breastfeeds a man, they're, they're horrified by it. And yet it shows that she's willing to give of herself. She isn't going to fall back into horrible grief and self-pity, although that would be the kind of thing we might expect from anyone in that circumstance. But instead, she is moving towards becoming more like a Ma or Tom Jode in that case, and not like her husband, who's kind of useless and is one of those literary characters where you want to put him on your horse whipping list. Whatever point we start having people be horse whipped again, we're going to nominate him for being whooped a bit. So typical guy, in other words. <laughs> well, I think there's typical guys and there are overachievers. And he's on the Tom Buchanan list of overachievers. <laughs> The ending is probably at the time was one of the most startling images imaginable. And it's often cited as the reason that the book gets banned. There's an interesting history to that image because Steinbeck actually discovered it in the 1920s when he was a young aspiring writer and he would go hang out at hobo camps and sometimes listen to men's stories and pay for the stories, actually give them money to be able to take details. And it crops up in his correspondence very early on before he ever writes anything that gets published that he has heard the story of a woman that offered to suckle a dying man. It's a shocking image because we associate that idea of suckling with a kind of sensuality. We tend to think of that as a, a sexual thing instead of a nourishing thing. But it's a way, I think, of also fusing into the communitarianism of the novel, this whole notion of we take care of each other, the plenitude and the richness of Song of Solomon, which is where they get the name of Rosa Sharon. And that's the idea that the sensuality of life is found in the sharing of resources. And it's a way of almost literally bringing him into the family. Right. And enclosing him within the kind of phalanx of protection again, I I realize I'm, I'm overusing the term and I promise not to use it again for at least a day and a half after we finish this episode. <laughs> again, we have within the first generation of humankind in the Bible, uh, one brother murdering another. And the question, of course, that's asked of, you know, am I my brother's keeper? The, the brother asks God for having, for, you know, Cain having slay and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? And the unspoken response is clearly, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And yet, how do you show it when you don't keep them? Exactly. And that's his criticism of capitalism, of the greed of, of agribusiness, the idea that these refugees could come and look at all of this land that is owned by an absentee landlord or a corporation that is exploiting labor. Years later, when he wins a Nobel Prize, there's a lot of controversy and a lot of American book critics are very much against it. And he, you know, he writes some pretty good books after this. I, right. I don't really put East of Eden among his best books, but I think uh, Winter of Our Discontent, which is one of his last novels, is actually a pretty interesting book. And some of his nonfiction, his World War II books are 
pretty good. He's a pretty active war correspondent. World War. It gets there a little late, but he does a great job talking about the bomber crews, helping people understand those. Travels with Charlie is a very famous book. And it tells us an experience late in life that recapitulates a lot of the research that he did for Grapes of Wrath, because there's a famous story in Travels of Charlie, where he goes out and he buys this van that he fits with a bed and everything. He can live in it, calls it uh, Ronsono after the after the horse and Don Quixote. Yeah. But 30 years earlier, when he was researching and going to these migrant camps, he bought an old bakery truck and refitted it so he could live in that while he was going to these camps and immersing himself in the in the culture. Which you can do in Northern California. Now, what I would tell you is with our heat index of 105 degrees today in South Carolina, and I know that Alabama's got a heat wave going on right now as well, that don't sleep in the back of a panel truck retrofitted into a camper without air conditioning if you can help it. Public service announcement. Yeah, this is not what on Instagram is known as van life. If you ever look up that hashtag where people buy the old Volkswagen vans and refit them into very chic and absolutely unaffordable living quarters in order to take pictures of of, of themselves as if they're living in the open wild. Well, and again and again, we're back to that idea that in a consumerist culture, how do you define your value? Well, you define it by what you can buy and how you display it. And how significant it is, and not by saying give moods, you know, giving food from the grocery store that's about to expire to, you know, what's the what's the service for elderly people? Um, Meals with wheels. Meals with wheels. Thank you. Um, I wanted to read one of the biographies by him was written by Jackson Benson. Is that the Fitzgerald? Yep, Jackson Benson. That book. There's a whole story behind that book. That was a 15 year in the making biography. And when the book was not the, you know, received as the magnum opus it was, he was kind of devastated by that. But it is the standard Steinbeck biography. It's just, you know, it raised the question when it came out in 1984, do we really need a thousand page biography of John Steinbeck? What else are you doing with your time? (laughs) So he says this about Steinbeck winning the Nobel, who himself told people maybe, you know, maybe he didn't deserve it. And Benson writes, and I got this again from my research assistant, Mr. Google. This honor was one of the few in the world that one could not buy nor gain by political maneuver, precisely because the committee made its judgment on its own criteria rather than plugging into the main currents of American writing. It's defined by the critical establishment that the award had value. So they didn't, it's saying that they're not looking at the fact that Steinbeck had fallen out of style. And where people go wrong when they think about Nobel Prize for Literature is they always think it's for a book and it's not, it's for a career. And we do know that politics has a place in Nobel Prize selections, particularly maybe these last 20 years. But it's kind of nice to see that with Steinbeck, they didn't worry so much about it. It's interesting because when that was first announced, the person that really kind of led the anti-Steinbeck protest against him receiving the Nobel was Arthur Meisner, who had just a decade earlier written the very first biography of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Ah. And you know, the title of his piece has kind of become infamous. It's called Does a Moral Vision of the 1930s Deserve a Nobel Prize? And I guess my answer would be, well, why not? Why not? You know, sure. 
And again, that's that's a moment where you see his humanism being used against him. That's a period in which I think almost the opposite of what we live in. When Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize in 1993, immediately the naysayers all said, well, it's just a political thing. They're just wanting to honor a black woman. So they're right. giving it to her, which is absolute BS. So you see how the terms shift. You know, Meisner was complaining that he only won it because of the politics, yeah. that the, the politics sacrificed the art. And of course, the politics in 1930s are far in the past by 62. So it's a bit bit silly. Now, Steinbeck only outlives the award by eight years. And has a little bit of controversy toward the end because he's fairly pro-Vietnam War in the early days, which I think for a man of his generation who was really worried about communism and who also saw what happened with the fascist World War II, spent time again covering the war, is, is probably not surprising. Well, his son was also serving in Vietnam. Right. So it's a little hard to be objective. And and Steinbeck was a friend of Lyndon Johnson's. So there were other reasons for him right. to do that. And it was before general public attitudes toward the war changed. Again, we, we said this before, there's always a tendency to take people out of context and judge them by a later day's political pedestal. And most of us, I think, will find that were we to have actually been in that time and place, maybe we wouldn't be able to do that as easily as we think. But his legacy, though he lives only six years, legacy lives on different ways. Now, right after the book comes out, we have a tremendous film adaptation by one of the best filmmakers of the classic right. era of Hollywood, John Ford. When the screen rights for Grapes of Wrath were sold, it earned $75,000, which at the time was one of the highest prices paid for a novel. It's hard. It's not hard to understand why Hollywood pay so much. I mean, when Grapes of Wrath came out within the first year, it sold 440,000 hardback copies. And then it came out in a cheaper cloth edition, kind of proto paperback edition and sold another half million copies. It was in the news a lot. It was a huge controversy. One of the library systems in, in California uh, burned the book, claiming that it was propaganda. Another novelist wrote a response to it and sort of portrayed the agribusiness owners as very gentle, caring people. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it had the kind of response a writer can only dream of. But you're exactly right. The Hollywood version, I think, sometimes competes with the novel, although the ending is very different. The Rosa Sharon scene is not in it. That could not have been filmed in 1940. But it also takes as its centerpiece what is maybe the passage that I think people remember the most from it. But I'm kind of curious what you think of this type of passage. This is very typical of proletariat novels. This is the passage in which Tom is choosing to leave the family for its own safety. Casey has been killed is a almost immediate response. Tom kills one of the, the strike breakers who clubs Casey to death and he's hiding out, but his little sister Ruthie gives him away accidentally. She's a child. She doesn't know better, but Tom says to Ma, you look around and you'll see me wherever you look. There's always a fight so people can eat. I'll be there wherever there's a cop beating a guy. I'll be there. If Casey knowed why, I'll be in 
in the way guys yell when they're mad and I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. That's really the line that people have seized upon to think of this novel as a call to political action. And when you're mentioning the legacies of The Grapes of Wrath, both Woody Guthrie's Ballad of Tom Joad, which essentially summarizes the book in 17 verses, but also Bruce Springsteen's ballad, The Ghost of Tom Joad, both of those make use of that particular speech. Yeah. What's interesting to me about Springsteen's song is that came out right in the heyday of the Clinton era, and it really did not find an audience, I don't think, at that moment, because the whole notion of poverty and of people being denied a means to life was under the radar at that time. It se- it just seems so out of sync. That song is so much more appropriate right. today. And of course, Springsteen at his most political now plays a version of it, a hard rock version of it that was inspired by the a version that Rage Against the Machine, the indie punk band came up with. That was at a time when Springsteen was kind of retiring from rock and was trying to just do singer, songwriter, acoustic, folk type stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a very uh, successful album, um, Goes to Tom Jode, and, uh, and it's a successful song, I would say. Um, you're right. It is it is weird timing for it. And I think you could argue that this is also the time of the dot-com millionaires. Yeah. And people, again, it probably had to feel to someone like Springsteen of mm-hmm. the 1920s with the excessiveness and, again, the, uh, the over-evaluation of consumerist culture and the love of people, you know, demonstrating their, their worth through demonstrating their wealth. And first there's the dot-com bubble bursts within a few years. And then it, we hit the great recession uh, in 2006, seven, you know, and really picks up space team and seven lasts for a few years. I think that song had its most valiance during the Occupy Wall Street era when Thomas Piketty and economists were questioning wealth inequity. And of course, that's a big theme going on today. You would think this book could be turned into a miniseries or filmed again as a movie. I kind of hope they don't because the art of a movie adapting a long novel is to choose the essence of it and be true to it and not exactly mimic it or copy it. And it's very rare to get it right. And of course, John Ford is one of the all-time greatest filmmakers and he couldn't have done it much better. His There's a bit more dignity in the Tom Joad and the film than there is in the novel because I think the um, stoic, cold, calm nature of Henry Fonda and because of how Ford knows how to frame that perfectly. But I think that's who Steinbeck wanted Tom Joad to be. You know, there are a few times where he's a little too chatty and he's a little too talking about the themes of the book to really get there. Well, and in the film, that is the most stirring moment, even though it's not necessarily the end of the film. Right. But it's also very typical of proletariat fiction. I mean, there's a line that Tom says earlier about a man can't do it alone is prefigured in Hemingway's very failed proletariat novel, To Have and Have Not. Well, and I think our problem there is that the proletarian parts of that novel are not really the parts that fell. It's the parts he writes where he's trying to trash the writing culture and the tourist culture of Key West that fell. The Harry Morgan parts are pretty good. It's almost as if Hemingway tried to incorporate his own La Faire Lettuceburg into a proletariat novel and didn't know better than to burn it to the ground. I know that Hemingway liked this book pretty well, but did he have much of a point of view on Steinbeck? I mean, 
He's usually only charitable to people he discovers and not people who are popular. His great rivalry was Faulkner. Fitzgerald, he kind of felt like he had already lapped by the 30s. But I think he saw Steinbeck as kind of a lesser version of himself. And I think in some ways, unfortunately, Steinbeck imagined Hemingway was always going to be a better writer than he was. Fitzgerald was very derogatory about Steinbeck. Of course, Fitzgerald had very little interest in the peasant folk hero and saw that as playing at socialism. Steinbeck dropped out of Stanford and went to work in farms and ranches and then bought a boat and did some fishing and crab work. And although he got handouts from his parents to make it, had a pretty tough time for a few years before the writing took off. Whereas Fitzgerald flunked out of Princeton and went work to work for an ad agency and, and, yeah. and hit. He didn't have that kind of long apprenticeship of the sort that Steinbeck did. He hit immediately was a bestseller and his stories are selling in the thousands at a time when in the hundreds was a big deal. Even in, and even through the thirties, he still got paid relatively well until he kind of dried up. Well, let me ask you this, Scott, do you think uh, Grapes Wrath is a great American novel? I absolutely do. I think that the themes are in every way, essentially American. I think it's ambitious and it takes chances. Like a lot of the books we discuss, it's not without its faults, but it has its virtues singly outweigh those. And I think in terms of durability, it's still when people talk about great American novel, this is on most people's short list of most significant novels about the, the American subject. I would agree completely. I think it is such a great American novel. We, we underestimate its greatness. As I began the podcast saying, it's maybe too, too obvious of a touch tone sometimes. You were mentioning, in fact, I, I was reminded when you were talking about hoping they didn't make a miniseries of it. A few years ago, Amazon ended up doing a one-season miniseries of uh, The Last Tycoon, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel about Hollywood. And they just very painfully grafted on the grapes of wrath into the storyline by having a Jode-like family camping out outside the Hollywood studio and incorporating that proletariat element. It was very jarring. Like the studio police would not have rounded those guys up. Well, and that's exactly what happens is they're not out picking peaches. They're trying to get jobs on the studio lot. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting that way. But yeah, I think we will always have adaptations of it because we will always have poverty in this society and there will be a desire to use literature to unite people to a political cause against the corporate world. And just remember, Tom Jode is out there somewhere fighting for you. Kurt, we've got this time on our podcast where we always think about some other book which should be seen as worthy of the canon that we like to promote. Sometimes we'll bust one out, but today we're promoting one. What is that that book, Kirk? I want to mention a couple things that people might read before I quite get to the to the potential canon fodder. But Grapes of Wrath is often read alongside a book by uh, another California journalist named Kerry McWilliams called Factories in the Field that came out around the same time. And that was a book that was used to prove through nonfiction, through journalism, to document some of the abuses that that the, the farmers associations claimed Steinbeck was making up. There's also an interesting book that's just been published in the last 20 years that was written in the 30s by Sonora Babb 
called Whose Names Are Unknown, which was supposed to be published by Random House in 1939. But Bennett Cerf, the founder of Random House, canceled that contract because The Grapes of Wrath was such a big success. Bab worked at one of the camps under this guy, Tom Collins, and there is a lot of speculation that Collins may have given Steinbeck some of her notes because there are really profound correspondences between both novels in terms of the descriptions and some of the elements. People have leveled the yield plagiarism claim against Steinbeck, but there's nothing in any of the documentation that suggests he actually knew her. So if he did know some of her uh, notes, he probably thought they were Tom Collins's. But the contemporary book that I would offer is Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina from 1992. Right. Probably the most famous story of childhood poverty of our own time. It's a novel that I think is contemporary in the sense that it uses poverty as a analog for sexual and familial abuse. It's a very graphic novel. There was a wonderful film version made with Jennifer Jason Lee in the mid nineties. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very angry and bitter book, but Allison has always cited Steinbeck as one of her major influences. In fact, when they had the Steinbeck Centennial in 2002, I went to an event at Lincoln Center. Don't ask me how I got there, but she spoke at that alongside Arthur Miller and several other literary luminaries. So it was kind of cool to see her speak, but it is a good book and it, and it bridges that idea of poverty as a trauma, every bit as damaging to the psyche as sexual abuse. Well, our next book is not going to be a book as such. Instead, we're going to have a special episode called Great American Noir, and we're going to tackle a handful of writers with their most significant book or two and just have kind of a brief fun discussion about classic works of roman noir or literary noir that we think the readers might enjoy. These are books that are crime novels, or detective novels, but are written at a high enough level that we think everyone should be reading them, and they're definitely worthy of consideration. And we thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are so inclined, please leave a review, especially if it's a favorable one. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Master to 40 with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Reading McCarthy with myself and guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. And we thank you for listening.